Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of this ARU podcast series, The Out of Hospital Science. Today's episode is about our experience and understanding of the assessment and management of paediatric patients. The episode will talk about small hints and tips regarding communication, uh, pharmacology and different algorithms that we may come across. With me today, I have Nathan. If you don't mind, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, uh, I'm Nathan. I'm a third year student paramedic. Well, Nathan, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Um, I'm going to start with uh, quite a simple question. What do you think are the biggest challenges we face when it comes to assessing and managing paediatric patients? And also, what's the most rewarding part of going to those patients? Uh, yeah, well, regarding paediatrics, I think the biggest challenges really would be like communication, uh, communicating with a baby and paediatrics infants, obviously very difficult. They can't give a very precise history or in-depth history. Um, locating the source of pain is very difficult. And then relying on the mother uh, for the, an in-depth history can be quite difficult as uh, maybe the parents or the guardian that's with the infant is quite distressed. So it would make it a challenging uh, moment during assessment of a paediatric, especially when they're an unwell baby. Uh, Also, trying to challenge the fact that they're inconsolable, crying, um, using the use of different tools and pieces of kit to try and distract the baby and console them can be very difficult. Uh, Also, anatomy and physiology as well. So obviously, uh, during the, from birth, during up until puberty, the uh, physio- physiological differences are major between these ages and uh, working out pharmacodynamics and kinetics with these uh, infants. It's quite difficult regarding weight and assessing weight, especially when we've not got very good tools for assessing uh, pedi- paediatrics in a pre-hospital environment. I'd say the whole situation with paediatrics, you've normally got more than one patient. You've got the child and the mother. So when the uh, child clinically improves from interventions that you've performed, it's quite rewarding to see that you've not just helped and improved the state of the uh, infant, but you've also consoled the family members around and uh, they've become more relaxed and they have their trust in you as well. Uh, Also, the fact that it's a challenging job, paediatrics, obviously you've got all these differences and challenges that I've mentioned previously. Uh, It's more rewarding. It feels like you've tested yourself a bit more. And the fact that we've got a different role as well within paediatrics, more with safeguarding, um, we turn into more protection with the infants, um, different policies allow us to protect these infants that could and are vulnerable from uh, day-to-day society. Yeah, I think I would definitely agree with most of the things that you say there. I think actually the the social aspect can also sometimes be challenging because you're trying to um, do your job as a healthcare professional or in the future as a healthcare professional and trying to look at that patient in a medical context but with this patient group with pediatrics you always need to take into account um, kind of the social context as well and always be 
um, be alert for those safeguarding issues that can occur and then escalate them appropriate, appropriately according to obviously your, your trusts uh, your trusts pathway. In terms of rewarding, whenever I've been to these patients, as you say, um, we really uh, sometimes really make a difference and it's nice to see that clinically on the patient but also on the parents. It's a very good opportunity to um, to practice our communication skills um, and yeah, it's usually quite um, a nice patient group to, to deal with, quite rewarding. So now let's imagine that you've just screened up at hospital and you are dispatched to a paediatric patient. What would you do or what, what tips would you give um, for when you're en route to that patient? What would you do in the ambulance while on the way there? Yeah, so on the way to a paediatric patient, I really wouldn't, my focus wouldn't be on the paperwork, it'd just be more on uh, the tools that may be needed for the anticipation of a job may, may be going to, especially if it's come through as quite an unwell job. Uh, so I'd look at things, uh, this is a tool that I've picked up during my paediatric placement, so I'd look at something, the acronym uh, WET FLAG, so which is the weight, so a rough average weight of the age that we go into the energy of joules that could be used to defibrillate the tube size or eye gel size uh, the volume of fluids the dosage of lorazepam the dosage of adrenaline and the dosage of glucose for the age of the baby the infant this could also be found though on page for age in a jail calc so this is what i normally turn to on the way to an infant and i just get um, what the normal observation signs are and I'll put a clip on my actual page for age on the page of the infant that we're going to and then is ready then so if we do need to quickly administer any medication I can just flip to the page have a look at the dosage and we're ready to go. Yeah that sounds very good actually I had never heard of this um, word flag acronym but I am definitely taking that into my next placement. Just as a recap Wet flag stands for W weight, E for energy, T for tube or IGEL size, F for fluid, L for lorazepam or diazepam, A for adrenaline and G for glucose. Yeah, as you say, I think it's important to mentally prepare for what you might walk into um, and especially if you've got some details about the call, um, just kind of have a think about how the patient might present and what you're gonna need to do so for example if I'm if I'm going to a pediatric patient with a respiratory complaint I'm already thinking about auscultation about uh, signs and symptoms that they might present with which might be red flags like intercostal recession um, or subcostal recession uh, the breathing rate, the heart rate, I write all the normal observations down and then I've got that baseline to look back once I assess my patient. So if we now think about arriving at that scene and having that first meeting with the patient and the parents, what techniques are out there? Um, so 
I've seen the uh, initial assessment triangle. Uh, do you want to talk to us about that, Nathan? Yeah, so in practice, the pediatric assessment triangle, so you'd be looking for work of breathing, circulation and appearance, and altogether these can bring whether you've got a big sick paediatric with you. So the circulation, I'm normally looking for uh, pallor, mottling or cyanosis of the lips, uh, any central cyanosis. So leading on from that, the first thing I do and I've picked up from my previous mentors is expose, especially if you're wearing a baby grower, you want to expose the um, infant as soon as possible. You want to see if there's any tracheal tug, um, any recession, intercostal abdominal recession, which goes on to work of breathing as well. So whilst auscultating whether there's any abnormal sounds, breath sounds, whether the respirate, respirate is high and then similarly with the heart rate as well, I'll auscultate for the heart rate at the same time as breathing and listen for that apex beat and listen to the rate and if this is high then you're suspecting quite an unwell uh, paediatric and it changes your plan and uh, initial approach to how you're going to treat the child and then with appearance whether they're crying so a crying baby is normally a good baby because it's in indicating that their airways open and they're actually conscious um, they look and gaze are they asleep do they seem sleepy or are they actively looking at you or looking at their surroundings and their interactiveness as well just watch them within their area of play if they are fortunate to be well enough to be playing around with the toys actually assess them because the paediatrics can deteriorate pretty f quickly and if they stop interacting with their uh, surroundings it could be a sign of that they are actually deteriorating yeah i think you bring on a very nice uh, tool here um the that initial assessment triangle uh, made up of your circulation, your breathing, and then your appearance of the child. Um, just kind of a little bit more of a talking more in depth about the assessment of pediatric patients. Um, have you ever had to use the traffic light system provided by Nice um, in order to? you know, risk stratify uh, a child and decide on their management plan? Uh, yeah, with regarding the traffic lights, it's just another tool that's at our fingertips. Uh, just open your JR Calc and the nice guidelines are there for febrile childs. Uh, they're quite a common presentation, febrile convulsions, febrile feverish child. So uh, going into risk stratification I think as a clinician though and obviously the more experience you get as a student not with that well experience but my mentor you've mentors you've come across uh, that our experience can identify whether this is a red category uh, child compared to a green category just on initial assessment and it's something that I think I'm developing well in doing as well is recognizing these sorts of unwell patients and when to act fast and start a treatment plan fairly uh, promptly. Um, regarding the tool, I don't wouldn't say I use it very much. I think it's just more of a guidance and a tool uh, to look back on maybe after the patient's uh, been 
transported or used as a discharge tool as well to if you are going to leave the infant unseen in the care of the family that just ensuring that if they're in the green you're you've safety netted the patient with the use of the tool and amber maybe a gp referral or anything amber or above up to the right categories then transport to hospital is necessary and i think it is good a safety net tool but it's not something that i've used generally in practice myself i'd say um i'm a bit more keen on using the red traffic red amber and green traffic light system that nice provides um, for me, it's been quite a useful tool, just, you know, making sure that I've kind of ruled out all those things in the high risk, in the red category, uh, make sure my patients are not having any red flags. Um, sometimes I also use it as a guide for my paperwork. So whenever I'm writing my paperwork after the job, I'll just use it to make sure that my paperwork reflects that red flag exclusion and you know to evaluate where my patient in which category they are um and for the paperwork to to reflect that as well uh, in terms of the uh children with fever um i think it's also quite important to highlight our management options so quite commonly parents might give their children calpol or paracetamol um, when they have a fever, but for us, it's I think it's important to understand that uh, an antipyretic should be used um, for the feverish child, but the the child that also presents with pain or discomfort, um, not solely for just fever. Um, nice guidelines also say that uh, pyrexia is a physiological. Uh, process which many times helps the child in their getting rid of the disease um, so things like paracetamol or ibuprofen should be used when there is pain or discomfort with that fever I believe that the guidelines currently state to for a child to start on paracetamol uh, the dose according to their age and then if that doesn't seem to reduce the pain or discomfort move on to ibuprofen um, and then after that uh, not use them in conjunction but alternate them if both um, if both medications have failed i think it's also important to know that um, fever in children can sometimes come as nathan said with febrile convulsions and again these antipy antipyretics uh, have not proved, have not scientifically proved to decrease uh, febrile convulsions in paediatric patients. So for the management of these febrile convulsions, um, I think it's important to promote active cooling um, and also to make sure that you're always differentiating and making sure that their febrile convulsions are not tonic-clonic seizures. Um, time them and if you see tonic-clonic movement um, and they last for longer than five minutes and the child has a history of epileptic seizures, then obviously follow the, the epileptic seizure pathway um, with the benzodiazepines and oxygen and airway management. Um, but I've my experience has been that whenever a patient has had febrile convulsions, um, 
the parents have recognized that and the active cooling has been started and they've either stopped while we've been en route so they're not uh, they don't have the convulsions when we arrive also i'd say febrile convulsions are usually quite different to the tonic-clonic epileptic seizures so they're quite easy to recognize um i don't know if you've had a similar experience uh yeah just reiterating on your point about active cooling really um i think it's quite surprising actually that the amount of patients that we've well i've personally been to have been layered up um because i think it's kind of a misperception or misconception from the parents that oh my baby's shivering or my child's uh, really cold because they're shivering but in fact it's actually the infant's way of combating the temperature pyrexia and I think the active cooling is a very good point because if they haven't done it already or been instructed to do it then one of the main things we could do to have an impact on our child is just take it down to the baby grow maybe out of the baby grow and just promote that cooling of the child so the febrile convulsions stop um also with these patients like an in-depth history uh, accounts for a lot so have they had an infection for the last week parents normally have their own temperature probes have they recently noticed that the temperature's been spiking uh, for whatever matter have they been illness any wet nappies or dry nappies um yeah, so a good tip as well within the history would be more social aspects regarding nurseries, schools. Is there at the moment any sort of infections that are going around the schools that the parents may have had a newsletter about? Any like viral or bacterial infections that can then lead into more severe um, problematic responses such as meningitis that could also cause this pyrexic response. And then finally, regarding the parents or guardian, whoever's on scene with the child, could be the teacher, you just want to give that reassurance really that if you are suspecting that it's a febrile convulsion and the reason that they were shivering and just trying to uh, relay your knowledge and uh, acknowledge that they need reassuring as well and managing that scene as well to bring the panic levels down to a baseline. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Nathan, um, for that. Um, I think we will end this episode by, you know, recognizing that we don't really get exposed to critically ill pediatric patients very often. So I think it's quite useful to just remind ourselves of a couple of the algorithms uh, for pediatrics. So just looking at um, the Resource Council pediatric choking so uh, we need to initially assess that severity and then see if they've got an effective or ineffective cough if the cough is effective encourage the patient to uh, continue to cough and if it's ineffective but they're conscious um, start with those five uh, back blows and then the five thrusts and continue that process whereas if they're unconscious then uh, open the airway and maintain airway patency and then give the initial five rescue breaths and then begin CPR. Just quickly moving on to the uh, BLS uh, algorithm for pediatric patients, just a gentle reminder again. Um, obviously carrying out your primary survey, um, discovering that they're not breathing um, and they don't have a pulse, um, so they are in cardiorespiratory arrest. Uh, begin with your five initial breaths and then perform a 15 to 2 
uh, chest compression to to rescue breath ratio. Important to uh, attach the defibrillator for early defibrillation, or if you're doing that manually, um, assess the rhythm and then just be reminded that, as Nathan said before, it's four joules per kilogram when setting up the joulage on the defibrillator. So I guess that brings us to an end for this episode about pediatric patients. Um, I hope you found it helpful. I really hope that some of the tools that we've spoken about um, you can take on board to your next placement. Uh, Thank you very much, Nathan, for joining me. um, And thank you for coming and speaking and sharing your experience and your knowledge. Um, To all those listening, thanks for tuning in for another week. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.